yes, we've all been asked to social distance. And yes, we've all had concern about our loved ones and about getting sick. But in terms of who's really at risk of losing their job, of losing their life, we are not all in this together. But I think the problem with that framing of shared sacrifice or we're all in this together is that it's actually a way of trying to find hope that hurts the most vulnerable. Because really, it's actually totally false. This is a conduit to a perpetuation of the lack of opportunity and the lack of competitiveness in the future. Some people are losing their jobs. Some people are unable to go to work as they regularly did. Some people are being required to go back to work while they're also caring for people who are most vulnerable for catching the coronavirus. Hello and welcome to the July 2020 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. In April and May only, AJPH has received more than 1,100 submissions, most of them related to the ongoing pandemic of COVID-19. These submissions reveal the disproportionate risks undergone by essential workers, minorities, incarcerated persons, immigrants, persons with disabilities, homeless persons, and other populations made vulnerable by their social and economical positions or simply because they are discriminated against. So are we really all together in this pandemic, as it is sometimes claimed, to stress the great empathy and solidarity reactions with essential workers that takes place every day throughout the country. In this podcast, I explore this claim under four different angles, social, statistical, historical, and occupational. My guests are Chenjerai Kumunika, Eamon Elmohandes, Amy Hillier, and Josie Calipeni. I am Alfredo Morabia, Editor-in-Chief of AJPH, and we are June 10th, 2020. My first guest is Chenjerai Kumunika. He is an Assistant Professor at the Department of Journalism and Media Studies at the School of Communication and Information of Rutgers University. He is very active on social media. Chenjerai hosted on June 2nd a video conference with the healthcare workers to see the pandemic through their eyes. So listen, Chenjerai, I want to have your opinion on something. Uh, you know, we see everywhere people saying with reference to the, the current pandemic of COVID-19 that we're all in this together. So when you see that, I'm sure you've seen that around, uh, what's your reaction? Yeah, I mean, I've seen that. And, you know, I think that this idea of kind of being all in this together and shared sacrifice, that we're a common community who kind of shares these burdens, it's really deeply appealing. And I, I get that. This is a brutal thing that does seem to affect everybody. There's been so much death 
and suffering. And so people are looking for symbols of hope. So I, I totally understand that. But I think the problem with that framing of shared sacrifice or we're all in this together is that it's actually a way of trying to find hope that hurts the most vulnerable. Because really, it's actually totally false. So first of all, by now, there's been a, a large consensus among those people who are able to think critically and historically that this pandemic has exposed pre-existing priorities. And, you know, so what we actually all do share is a, a political economic condition of racial capitalism. The disease has fallen on the most vulnerable. Even the ability to access testing is not really a shared condition. The communities that need it the most have been tested the least. You know, in the pandemic, we see essential workers being on the front lines and not being protected. And and this has real race and gender manifestations too. We're talking about predominantly black folks and brown folks, Latinos, minorities, and poor people and, and women. A certain kind of folks are really victimized by not even really just the disease, but the economic priorities that shape the response, shape the ability to get protection from the disease. Yeah, and, and Chandrai, also the fact that uh, they've been made vulnerable by the gig economy. If this were a good job with benefits, with protection, etc., the situation would be very different. It would be very, very different. I'm thinking about a woman whose name is Chantrice Johnson. She works in Chicago at Amazon. Amazon considers her an essential worker. She was forced to go to work. But Amazon's economic priorities meant that they don't want to close their plant, even though their workers at DCH1 facility are protesting, demanding that they clean the plant, a very reasonable demand. So what happens? Chantrice is, is tests positive for COVID. Now, I talked to Chantrice. Here's the problem. Chantrice also has another job as a home health aide. The moment when I talked to Chantrice, she wasn't even thinking about Amazon. She was thinking she needs to go back to her home health aid job, which means she has to get two negative tests from COVID. What that meant for her and her life in reality was that she had to actually take public transportation to a free testing site because her insurance won't cover a lot of paid tests, wait for hours online, hoping to get one test and then go back and do it again just to get tested negative so she can go back to her second job. That's not even dealing with Amazon yet. So to talk about that as a shared sacrifice with someone like Jeff Bezos, who's actually her employer, that is crazy and doesn't and just does not stand up to critical scrutiny at all. And Chandrai, I mean, you talk about the public health perspective. People in public health think that health should not be directly connected to your social and economical status. It should be a right. It should be a common good. Yes, you're absolutely right. This is often called social determinants, even though that language doesn't really resonate with the public very much. In public health, we have to think about our language. But yes, race, gender, and class. But when I talk about class, I'm not just talking about income. I'm talking about the kind of power relation you are in in your workplace. And you definitely see that with someone like Chantrice. But also, we, we have to talk about where we're at now, which is like coming out of the crisis. You know, when you look at not so much the nation as a community that shares a sacrifice, that's the wrong sort of unit of analysis. It's not the nation. That is, that is a shared sacrifice. But there is a kind of solidarity of working people, of the people who are vulnerable, of the people who are committed to social justice. And we have to form a shared analysis and then have shared solidarity. And we desperately need the research, the perspective and expertise of public health 
so that we can actually do that. But that requires us pointing out some of these antagonistic relations. And it does require us being able to acknowledge explicitly that some of these corporations and certain kinds of government figures are actually operating in a way that's antagonistic to our public health. Let's look now at the data about the impact of the pandemic with Eamon El Mohandes, Dean of the CUNY School of Public Health. The school launched a longitudinal survey to describe the impact of the pandemic in the various subgroups of New York City population. There is a dearth of accurate data about the race, gender, and social distributions of COVID-19. The New York City survey is therefore a precious source of information about who is affected by the pandemic and how. So, Eamon, please tell us about the New York City survey that the School of Public Health has been conducting over the last weeks in relation to uh, COVID-19. Well, uh, we are conducting this survey on a weekly basis. We started in mid-March. The data that we're collecting is not necessarily what you would find on the website of the Department of Health because this kind of information is collected through polling the public directly. This is of great importance because one thing that is coming out of the current submissions to the journal is the unequal distribution of the burden of the pandemic on the population. So does your survey allow you to say something about this distribution? Indeed it does. We found that amongst Latinx or respondents in Spanish, that 65% respondents from that group reported food insecurity compared to only 44% of all New Yorkers. Same to be said about issues of, for example, job loss, which was reported at 45% amongst Latinx versus 33% amongst whites. We saw that amongst the, the Latinx population, 45% reported housing issues and housing problems compared to 38% in African Americans and 22% in whites. When we asked our respondents about working from home, only 23% of the Latinx population had the privilege of working from home versus 35% of African Americans, but then 51% of whites who are currently employed were working from home at the current moment. We begin to understand that social isolation is somewhat of a privilege and not a choice in the sense that you have to have a roof on your head, you have to have food available to you, and you have to have the nature of employment that allows you to stay at home and work from home, which is a privilege that many of these populations do not have. So you see that these populations defined by race and ethnicity are also defined by a life reality that is unique to themselves. Hey man, you've been a New Yorker and the Dean of the School of Public Health for many years. Were you expecting such extreme findings? In this country, racial and ethnic disparity does represent 
a very clear categorization of vulnerability. And there are certain categories with very narrow social reserves, also biological reserves. A, a very good example is the issue of health coverage and health insurance. And during this very epidemic, 23% of the Latinx population had lost health insurance versus 14% of African Americans and only 6% of the white respondents. The margin is so narrow that a challenge such as this one pushes this population easily towards despair. And 51% of blacks, 59% of Latinx, and 68% of Asians expressed hopelessness about their future because of the circumstances surrounding this epidemic. Wow, those are huge numbers. You are talking about more than half of the people of color that you surveyed that have food insecurity, unemployment, housing problem. What about the children? We also were very interested in how this epidemic could impact on the next generation. Those of them that only had a high school diploma or less said that only 37% of their children were doing well under this new environment of homeschooling and distance learning versus 67% of people that had some college or more. This is a conduit to a perpetuation of the lack of opportunity and the lack of competitiveness in the future. Let's turn now towards the historical roots of these health inequities. Amy Hellyer has studied the geography of health and disease in 19th century Philadelphia. A wonderful movie about her historical GIS mapping project based on W.E.B. Du Bois' 1986 book entitled The Philadelphia Negro is available on her website. I thought that Amy could uniquely reflect about how things have changed over the last 120 years when she looks at the public health maps then and now. The book was published in uh, 1896. So what were the reasons for the hypermortality that Du Bois observed among the African-American compared to the white population of Philadelphia? To me, the most important chapter for understanding the hypermortality of Blacks was the chapter that he wrote called The Environment of the Negro. And in that chapter, he points to the conditions under which Blacks were living in Philadelphia that made it different from whites and particularly upper income whites. He pointed to overcrowded housing. He talked about the lack of light and air and clean water and plumbing and sanitation um, that all contributed to higher disease rates. He talked about workplace exposure. Uh, most Black residents were working in domestic service or in labor, and that disproportionately exposed them to disease, to risk, to accidents. And also, he points to discrimination. And we know now that systematic 
exposure to discrimination over the life course, racial discrimination, wears your body down. So I think all of those are factors that were playing out in the Seventh Ward in the late 19th century. And sadly, we've seen those playing out with the COVID crisis. But did uh, Du Bois propose solutions to that? He did. And pretty quickly, he was not satisfied with the solutions that he suggested. He really thought that bearing witness to these inequities would make a difference. He presumed he was writing to a white audience and that there were benevolent despots. There were white people in power who, once they realized what was happening and the conditions under which blacks were living and how unfair it was, that they would be moved to make a difference. Even by the time he finished the book, and certainly by the time he moved to Atlanta and started some new research down there, he was pretty cynical about the ability of social sciences and academic research to affect change. And that's one of the reasons that he goes on to be, you know, an advocate, you know, a civil rights activist working with the NAACP, where he felt that he had to more directly try to affect change. Du Bois points to some of the challenges of convincing white people of these larger structural inequities and racism. And, you know, he points to an obsession with looking at the behavior of black people. Are they criminals? Are they prostitutes? Are they gamblers? And he gets caught up a bit in that moralizing, but he also sees that that those behaviors are playing out in a very uneven playing field, that they often are symptoms rather than the causes of what's going on with the inequities. I think similarly, and I've had some of my colleagues at Penn, Brigitte Bronner among others, point to this same tendency now is to think that the differences we're seeing in COVID are somehow related to behavior. It's because uh, Black people are out playing basketball or having uh, congregating and having picnics that somehow they're not social distancing and that's what's causing the, the inequities and, and really ignoring the larger structural issues and the long-term racism that we've seen. So I think that's a really important similarity with Du Bois' analysis. It helps us make sense of what's going on today. Yeah, but Amy, I mean, this was 130 years ago. So how is it possible that today we see the same types of uh, inequalities Du Bois could observe? They look somewhat different in the the way that segregation plays out, what housing looks like. Du Bois was writing before there was public housing, before there was segregation with the suburbs. And so it doesn't look exactly the same, but it was true then and it's true now that racism is just baked into our institutions. The unwillingness of folks to embrace the full humanity of all people, that those are baked into our structures in this country and, and beyond, and that has not changed. Amy, when you look at the maps today of the harm that uh, COVID-19 is doing, are there analogies that you see with what you were seeing in Du Bois' work in Philadelphia 130 years before? Yes, the distinct spatial patterns that we see now, we could see in what Du Bois did. Now, Du Bois was looking at a different scale. Du Bois was talking about the Philadelphia Negro, the experience of being a Black person in Philadelphia in the late 19th century was very different from being a white person, whether you were born in the United States or an immigrant. He was looking at the scale essentially of a neighborhood and the patterns that we see are, are block by block, the, the racial segregation, the differences in terms of ownership and renting and other proxies for, for income. So the scale was different, but the maps really underscore that we are not all in this together. There's nothing 
common. Yes, we've all you know been asked to social distance, and yes, we've all had concern about our loved ones and about getting sick. But in terms of who's really at risk of losing their job, of losing their life, we are not all in this together. Now let's see how essential workers, such as home care workers, perceive the fairness of this pandemic. I reached out to Josie Calipani from the organization Caring Across Generations. It seems that the caregiving families and, and uh, home caregivers are hit very severely by this pandemic, uh, more than other sectors of the population, I would say. What do you think? They really are, Alfredo. The impact on care workers is really detrimental in this moment on their wages and on their family economics. Some people are losing their jobs. Some people are unable to go to work as they regularly did. Some people are being required to go back to work while they're also caring for people who are most vulnerable for catching the coronavirus. Everybody's thinking about how do I not pass this? How do I not catch it? How do I maintain enough income to be able to do the things that I need for my household? You know, there will be another wave. What should we be doing in order to uh, prevent a similar crisis? We need to make sure that essential workers who are being required to work, such as home care workers, frontline workers, and even family caregivers who are now doing the bulk of care, have affordable access to protective equipment that folks can get accessible and free training for how to respond and how to give care. And we have to think about the formal and informal care providers in our communities. This is everything from child care workers to domestic workers to nannies to home care workers. We really have to think about how we support them doing their work effectively and efficiently in a way that pays them for their hard work. Josie, you said that uh, home care workers could not go into families because of the risk of infection now, and that's why they were losing their job. How could this change in case of a new wave of this pandemic or the ongoing wave. If they're being required to go to work, we should be able to figure out how to equip them with protective equipment, whether that's ongoing masks so that people don't have to reuse masks, whether that's gloves and disinfectant. Workers should feel equipped and have all the equipment they need to do the work that they're doing. And then workers shouldn't feel like they're arduously and insignificantly putting their lives at risk to do the work. All my interviewees emphasize that we are not in this together. The pandemic has exacerbated previous inequities that go back centuries. Sabrina Strings, an associate professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine, said it eloquently 
in an op-ed of the New York Times. She wrote, The era of slavery was when white Americans determined that black Americans needed only the bare necessities, not enough to keep them optimally safe or healthy. It set in motion black people's diminished access to healthy food, safe working conditions, medical treatment, and a host of other social inequities that negatively impact health. To check the validity of Sabrina String's statement, I invite you to listen to previous AJPH podcasts in which we discuss the long-term consequences of slavery, today's role of mass incarceration, the manifestations of structural racism, the deleterious effect of the gig economy, and many more issues that paved the way to the present disaster. The pandemic has shed a crude light on the extent of the unfairness of the current state of our societies, and most likely has triggered the massive reaction to the abominable killing of George Floyd. We have a long recovery phase ahead. Let's build the public health we need. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino and Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Francis Jacob, always eager to hit an optimistic note, paraphrased this month a rock song about coming together. This is Alfredo Morabia at HAPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese, visit us at www.hjph.org or subscribe to it on your usual podcast app. A full transcript of the podcast is available on the AJPH website for persons with hearing disabilities. That's it. Thank you for listening.